and we are live. We're live. Yes, We're live. we are live again. And we are uh, American wildebeest in the background here. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, welcome to welcome to shooting the shit American craft distillers, not Australian craft distillers tonight. We are joined. With the one, the only, Mr. Alan Bishop, the alchemist, the craft extraordinaire who talks about fucking space bourbon, and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna <laughs> dive, dive deep tonight. We're gonna dive, dive deep. Alan, how are you, bud? I'm good. I'm literally gonna have my dad sit in the background of every podcast I do from now on, just eating fucking zebra cakes and looking like a road construction <laughs> sign. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> uh, that's awesome that's awesome all right so what we gen what we tend to do is so okay let me introduce myself for people that don't know me my name is crafty uh craig from craftworks distillery in uh dot on the map capity new south wales australia planet earth and todd my right hand man in the top left hand corner and luke up in the top no, Luke's in the left. Luke's on the right. He is the glue that holds this whole machine together, and we call him Boss Stick. And then, of course, we've got Mr. Alan Bishop. Weekend. French Lick. Indiana, <laughs> USA. Yep. All right, guys. So I'm going to say, what's everyone drinking tonight? But, um, Alan, what are you drinking? <laughs> I was told it was dirty water. That's what I was just told. It, 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 <laughs> which it basically is, it's just fucking Folgers coffee. Just whatever it takes to get up and get your shit moving in the morning, right? <laughs> Literally. And you, and you, uh, you, you, uh, we were communicating before it, um, before we went live, and you were saying you went off to uh, turn the still on. So it's uh, start of your day. What time is it over there? Uh, it's seven twenty-five right now. So. 7.25. What time do you normally start? Uh, it just depends. Uh, we've got our processes down now to where about 7 o'clock in the morning is, is pretty decent. Um, yeah. When we were first starting up the first couple of years and working out all the bugs and all that stuff, we used to start about 5.30 or so. But mm. um, knock on wood, I think after six years of distilling, we've got we've got it under control finally. We halfway know what everything's going to do. And if, something, if something goes wrong, we got a pretty good idea of where it went wrong at. Yeah, right. Okay. Well let's let's go let's go right back to the start, mate. So Moonshiner. Oh, what's that? I'm sorry. Moonshiner? That's where you where Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's where I started at when I was a when I was a kid. I grew up in a family. Uh my dad who was just in here a while ago. Uh him and my, my mom's father, uh, they were both doing some distilling. Um, I don't think they took it too terribly it wasn't like an artistic endeavor. It was just you know, let's make some alcohol and get drunk, basically. Um, but it, it ran in my mom's family and a little bit in my dad's family as well. Um, I've never looked too deep into how many generations and all that stuff. I don't worry too much about it. But I basically, I grew up around it. I mean, my, uh, my dad uh, inherited a tobacco farm uh, from my grandparents on, on his side. So I grew up uh, raising tobacco and uh, making moonshine literally to pay property taxes and pay for Christmas. So I remember being around stills when I was, you know, three or four years old and it was just like another piece of farm equipment, right? To me, it was like a, it was like a tractor or something. It wasn't, there wasn't anything romantic about it or anything necessarily fun about it. It was literally 
another reason why we couldn't go do something fun on the weekend at the time. Um, you know, and then, then when I was about 15, I got obviously tangentially interested in distilling for, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, yeah. I'm not saying I had the best parents in the world or the worst parents in the world, but I had the parents that were like, yeah, if you want to have a party, uh, it has to be here at the house and we have to make sure it's okay with all the other kids' parents. And, uh, also you're all working in the tobacco field tomorrow morning. Uh, so the, the rules were my dad and grandpa helped me put a little 10 gallon, uh, stainless steel distiller out. It was actually out of an old, um, stainless steel, uh, coffee dispenser from Fort Knox, uh, Kentucky. Um, and the rules were, cause it wouldn't tell me how to do anything. I knew all the stuff I'd seen them do or help them do, but the rules were literally don't blow your ass up in the backyard and bring us something that's worth drinking. So. <laughs> right. I, I have. From a distance, right? Because we're in Australia, right? And we, we look at uh, what's going on in America. We look at the craft uh, distilling scene in America. And, and here we talk about it. And we think we're probably maybe five, eight years behind where you guys are. But we're on a very, very similar trajectory. Um, and... Yeah, some of the cool shit that's going on in America. And I want to talk about some of the cool shit that's going on in America. What do you think is cool shit going on in America right now in the craft scene? Well, first I would say on the Australian side, I think you guys will catch up pretty quick because I still think here in the United States even, um, it was a slow build for craft distillers, right? Unless you were in the right state at the right time and had the right kind of money. Uh, I mean, there's, there's still states, you know, coming online to some extent now. Um, and I think you guys are far beyond where they're at. I mean, really, in, in the U.S., unless you were in Kentucky, New York, uh, or Texas, um, you know, everybody else is just kind of catching up. And Colorado, obviously, as well, part of that yeah. with Leopold Brothers. But uh, uh, the things that excite me about craft distilling right now is uh, I think we finally reached bourbon saturation, where uh, it's not going to go away. It's going to keep selling on every craft distiller. Just about every craft distiller is going to have to have a bourbon. Yeah. But the consumer is looking for either alternative versions of bourbon or they're looking for something that's not bourbon at all. And that greatly excites me because there's so much more to do with distilling than what's been done uh, since Prohibition. And none of, none of it's new. None of Honestly, none of this stuff is new. This is all old hat pre-Prohibition. There were farmers in the 1800s doing this shit. And it's just been forgotten about, right? Um, but the deeper into that we can go... The more excited I get because um, we do well with bourbons, obviously, but I'm bored with bourbon and I'm ready to do other stuff. And I'm glad that consumers are willing to look at that other stuff and not look at it and think it's just weird as shit anymore like they did several years back. Um, so that's that's really the thing I'm most excited about, I think, is, is to see how product lines are going to diversify, uh, you know, breaking into categories that the TTB just looks at and goes, ah, we don't know what to do with this, right? It, now it's what they call distilled spirit specialty because we have no format for what the hell this should be, you know, like split brandy, yeah. uh, you know, which are basically half grain and half fruit, which was, wasn't ever a huge category pre-prohibition, but it certainly existed. So <laughs> I'll tell you a story about that. You'll love this. You'll love it. So there's a distillery about an hour down the road, uh, Baker Williams. Uh, and he did uh, whiskey and he did uh, grape spirits as well. And um, accidentally, he mixed two vessels together, grain and, <laughs> grain and grape, right? Yeah. And 
it was like, fuck, right? And the story was he, he put it to one side and it was just it just annoyed the crap out of him. It's like, ah, oh, Jesus, why did I do that? It's such a such a stupid mistake, right? Anyway, one day he tasted it and he went, that's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> so he released it as a product called Wildcard. And, mate, it was really popular and really interesting spirit. Very interesting because you got you, you really sort of got the two elements of it. Yeah. So over over here, the, the thing back before Prohibition with a lot of farm small farm distillers that were, you know, they were still commercial distillers. They, they were the equivalent of what craft distillers are now. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them did focus on branding and they do a little whiskey on the side, whatever. Um, but the two big split brandies over here were, were peach and wheat and then apple and rye. But now I, I do have a barrel with a very similar story to what you just said, uh, setting in my barrel room right now. That was an accident. Um, I'm not, I'll admit that on the Australian podcast. I'm not saying that shit on the American. Uh, because right. I, no, I, no one in America will hear yeah. this. If, if, I, if I say it on the, See, if I say it on here, even and even if they do hear it, they will hear it. I can get away with it, right? But when it comes to, like, if you go on a fucking bourbon show or whatever over here, I'm going to be like, no, that was my genius idea. That, you know, I'm just like, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Well, what happened was I had some blackberry brandy, and I had a, a half barrel of uh, rye whiskey. It wasn't even half a barrel. It was a quarter barrel of rye whiskey. And uh, yeah. I was just sitting on the floor, and I thought it was empty. So we filled it, and then I looked at the side of it. Son of a bitch. So now I got, I got a blackberry rye thing. I don't know. I Honestly, I probably ought to get into it because I haven't, I haven't been into it since we did. That was like three years ago. So <laughs> it might be shit. I don't know. Could be great. Wow. That's 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 cool. That's that's real cool. Um, one of one of the things right now, which is really really exciting me, is um, the way that, that, that I, I learned how to make whiskey. Right, was a lot of research, uh, very very Scotch focused. Uh, did training courses, trained with distillers, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And it was all from a from a cereal grain standpoint. It was all about the starch, right? It was all about high starch content, right? And high sugar conversion, right? Which translated to yield. And of recent, in the last few years, there's been this, this other discussion, which is, no, go back to, to what used to be done. And the varieties of barley were lower yielding, but also higher flavor. And, it, and Todd Leopold, from Leopold Brothers, explained it to to me best in a, in a YouTube clip when he was talking about, and he's basically said starch is not flavor. It's what else is in, 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 the, in the kernel that is flavor. And so you go, okay, so a lower starch content barley, even though it's a lower yielding, can produce a, 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 higher, a higher flavor profile. That's the way I've gone. So in Australia, I'm using lower-yielding uh, barley, and we're, we're packing some big flavors. Um, and I know you're on the, the same boat, and, and I'd, I'd love to hear from you in your words, what's your interpretation of this, this relationship between starch and flavor? Yeah, absolutely. That's something I'm big on. And, and so over here, we get a lot of, you know, obviously with the heritage of, of bourbon and rye in particular, you get a lot of conversations about well, why did whiskey back before Prohibition taste like it did versus whiskey now? Um, and why did it, 
most of the time it seems like it was better quality whiskey and, and that's part of it is is that they were not efficient they were in no way shape or form efficient back then um you know we deal with specific gravity a lot here and you know you go to a school for craft distilling over here and they're going to tell you that you're you're not you know finished with your fermentation until you're below 1.000 well these old distillers they were finishing out fermentations at 1.010 1.020 they're leaving some some sugar and some starch behind in the pot because they couldn't convert it all, um, especially with the malts they were using at the time. And so yep. one of the biggest mistakes, that, in my opinion, that craft distillers over here make with cereal grains in particular is using uh, artificial enzymes 100% efficiently, right? Or even using them at all. Because I think, and, and Todd and I have talked about this a lot, and, and I think Todd agrees with me, um, you know, you mentioned the starch thing. Starch isn't flavor, but the interesting thing that does happen is that starch is tied to other aromatic precursors. And if you're dealing with a pot still and you're dealing with time under heat and you have that unconverted starch, the thing that happens is you start to break down the aroma precursors that are there. And so you're getting flavors in your whiskey um, that you, you wouldn't get if you're running at 100% efficiency because you're getting aromas out of that whiskey you wouldn't get if you were running at 100% efficiency. So I think if people really want to go back and they want to make that old school type of bourbon or rye or whatever that they're making, having a little bit of residual unfermentable sugar in there, a little bit of starch in there even is worthwhile. And then the other aspect of that too, and, and we haven't done it here yet. I, I'm going to do an experiment with this shortly. Lenny Eckstein at Deerhammer is doing this right now because I think I kind of challenged him to it when I was drunk and he was on Distiller's Talk. So um, the old school thing with bourbon, of course, everybody's familiar with sour mash bourbon. And what sour mash is now is not what it was at all. So sour mash now, they're basically, they're taking their hot stillage from their, their previous distillation. They're using that as part of their heating water and part of their acid adjustment for their next cook. Uh, yep. But it's fresh. The old school way of doing that was actually a way of retaining that starch that you didn't get used up in fermentation last time. You're trying to take some of that, get some more sugar out of it. But the weird thing about it is it becomes almost like a muck pit or a dunder pit because it would right. set sometimes for a few weeks at a time they get lactic infected and get a little bacteria in there of different types uh and then they would dose it one of two ways they'd either put it into the fermentation after the fermentation was started or they would even just add it to the still itself as they're running the still mm. right. so it's really it's really all those impurities that are giving you yeah the flavor the 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 uniqueness of spirit as opposed to just getting all the alcohol out of the grain because back in the day it was all inefficiency there was no efficiency mm. you know i mean you're yeah. you look at um you know they knew if you look at ttv records over here from prohibition they knew that you could get four and a half gallons per bushel of maize right but they often most of the time if they went into a distillery and they were doing their, their checks you know a distillery that was running at fairly high efficiency at that time was running maybe three gallons a bushel something of that nature so and again that's going to have a major effect on flavor so mm. so when you when you, you you listen to what you said right and and you went deep 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 really really quick right so there'll be a lot of people watching this and rewinding it to, to understand it um, I way over talk. I, and, and I'm surprised that that many words came out of my mouth this early in the morning. I was impressed. I was, I was well impressed. <laughs> it was very, very articulate, believe me. But what I was going to say is, so the big end of town, the big end of town, right? This is not the discussion that they want to hear. 
because it is all very much driven by costs and efficiencies. And this is why you hear the argument, which is to, to some distillers is, is almost an affront, right? Is barley does, I'm talking barley specific, barley doesn't want flavor, right? It's all, the further you go down the process of making whiskey, the least impact it has. That's the, that's the argument that's put forward, right? So barley is right at the start of the process. So it makes fuck all different what barley you use. The barrel is king. It's all about the barrel, right? And that's 80% of the flavor. So the discussions that, that we're having now, what, what you just mentioned, is, is the complete opposite of that and doesn't sit well with, with some people in the industry, does it? I, I could I could not get hired at a well, and I've been offered jobs at large facilities, but I'd be miserable um, <laughs> because my philosophy doesn't work that way, and I'd be bored as well. Um, but no, absolutely. I mean, that, and that's one of the things for us in Southern Indiana, right? We're we're literally I'm in Bourbon's backyard, but I'm not in Kentucky, right? And so yep. you automatically get blown a bunch of shit for that because apparently there's people who think that you know the settlers came in, they got to the uh, the south bank of the Ohio River, and they looked across it and they said, I don't know what the fuck's over there, but I'm not going, right? And that's not <laughs> the way that it worked historically at all. So if you're going to be here in southern Indiana and you're going to you're going to be making bourbon, you'd be better off to be in Wisconsin or wherever, right? Anywhere away from Kentucky, really, so that you're yeah. not getting compared to them. But yeah, I mean that that was one of the big things when we first started was you know we we had you know I knew a lot of the guys that were you know writers in the industry and they came to our grand opening and you know they kind of talked trash in their articles and all that stuff when we first started because I was explaining to them you know the rationale behind everything that we do. And, you know, part of that rationale is for us exactly what you just said. It's the it's exact opposite of what you're going to see out of bourbon. So for us, uh, the rationale is and the motto is respect the grain. The idea that obviously grain has terroir, the variety of grain matters, where it's grown at matters. You know, the, the fermentation matters, the distillation matters, the maturation matters, the yeast matters. Yep. All, your mood the day you made it or the day that you blended mm -hmm. it, all that shit comes into play, right? It's all part of. That's the fun of being a craft distiller and especially working with pot stills. Everything affects everything. And so even with the barrel side, you know, if you talk to big Kentucky distillers, their first thing that they're going to say is exactly what you just said. 70 to 80% of the flavor is coming out of the barrel. And for us, we fight that. What we want is a blend and balance of, you know, grain as it was in the field, fermentation, distillation, 50%, and then 50% maturation, right? Because what's the point of taking that barrel and even if we like the flavors of the barrel uh, and overdriving completely the, the raw material that you started with, because then what becomes a point of labeling something, a single malt or a weeded bourbon versus a rye bourbon versus a buckwheat or a kasha bourbon or whatever, right? Like if, if you can't taste that raw grain and the unique characteristics of that raw grain and this look, the balanced portions of that grain, the positive portions of that grain, why bother to use it? I mean, there's, there's plenty of weeded bourbons out on the market, for example, right? But you get a hold of, uh, for example, for me, some of the wellers that are out there, you could blind those against to somebody. And I would say that nine out of 10 times, people are not going to realize that that's a weeded bourbon because the positive characteristics and attributes of the grain are no longer there. They're, they're now, it's now barrel dominated. It's now barrel heavy. It's, it's, it's sort of muddied the waters. A little bit, so. mm. uh, it's... It's um, it, it, it's a it's a really really interesting um, 
discussion point. You know, one, one of the things that I heard that was put forward uh, as, a, as a counterpoint, and th this came from someone very, very senior in, in the Scottish industry uh, quite a few years ago, and he, he basically said, distillation is, is a destructive process. So even if you had flavour in barley and you, could, you wouldn't be able to pull it across because of the destructive nature of distillation, but then you, you 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 think it through as a distiller, and you go, then why fuck around with yeast? Because right. it does come across after distillation. So it, would, it's a flawed argument, isn't it? I would say that his philosophy is very flawed. What my argument there would be that uh, the fermentation process is destructive, but it's destructive in such a way that you're breaking everything down to its individual components and changing components. And the distillation itself is bringing those components together in a way that they didn't exist before. You have to destroy to create, right? I don't, I don't think that he's hmm. thinking that way. He's thinking that you're just destroying everything to make alcohol for inebriation, which is yep. a philosophy of distillation to begin with. But no, granted, it's a philosophy that got me into distilling when I was 15, right? I'm 38 now. My mind has changed a little bit on that. And, you know, you can only take so many hangovers when you work in a distillery anyway. So, um you know, I think uh, I think he definitely had a flawed philosophy as far as that goes, in my opinion. Yeah. Mm. Look, what, one of the things that uh, Todd, um, Todd, my right hand man there, right, doesn't get doesn't get paid, but I don't get paid. He gets paid in whiskey, don't you, Todd? <laughs> <laughs> sort of. It's got to be some folks to help with. It's got to be some folks. But we we often talk about um, brewing. And the the importance the, the importance of brewing as versus uh, distillation and and the balance of two and how a lot of people don't put enough emphasis on the flavor levers that you control at the ferment stage um, and it's it's something in America that I think you guys do really well because a lot of craft distillers have come out of craft brewing backgrounds. And so they have an understanding of the grains and they have an appreciation for the brewing process. So what's, what's your take on, on that, Al? This is actually kind of interesting. Um, I think there are several of us that do have a, a pretty good understanding of that process, some, some more so than others. But I will tell you that that's the first thing that uh, the first criticism I have of any other distiller in the United States is, can you do beer math? Can you write a mash bill? And, and, and a lot of them can't. And that just drives me up the wall. So, like, here's my opinion is if you can't do beer math and you can't write a mash bill, I don't care about anything you say after that, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm tuned out. You're dealing with cereal grains, so you better be able to write a mash bill. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to. Um, but I do agree that, like, guys like Todd Leopold, I think uh, the guys at Iron Root Republic in Texas in particular, um, you know, there's, there's lots of guys playing around with cool fermentation stuff out there. Um, and I think that those are the things that kind of excite us. And, and those of us that are really into the craft as well. I mean, we're, we're constantly learning and reading and you know, rewiring our brains about how things actually work uh, all the way down to the extent that there's, there's a small group of us that still keep up with a lot of the home distilling forums because home distillers are doing cool shit, you know, and the guys that are, that are doing that at home right now are going to be the guys that are doing, being craft distillers in 10 years. And if you don't keep up with them, they're going to be ahead of you when they start. So um mm -hmm. yeah I, I love the brewing aspect of it and i the other thing about it is i like to break the rules of the brewing aspects of it like i i hate brewing 
and distilling dogma in general, right? Because you go back and you look at, at the way things were done in the 1800s and, and were fermentations clean? Not always. Were they dirty? Were they, were they purposely dirty? Maybe not. Maybe they were, but they were getting some interesting results out of them, right? And they were doing really cool stuff. So, you know, just like propagating uh, the yeast that I've captured from some of the old distilleries and stuff like that, I know that I'm not keeping a, a pure culture. There's no way I'm keeping a pure culture. I have a microscope. I'm just... I'm just smart enough to be able to look at things and go, yeah, it doesn't look quite right. You know what I mean? Uh, but if it's making good products, do I really care that much? I mean, um, you know, as long as it's not crazy off profile, I'm pretty happy. And, you know, if it is crazy off profile, if it's good, you know, it's its its own unique product. So um, I, I love getting in all this stuff. I'm switching stuff out, up out here on the fermentation all the time. My, uh, my still hand, who's out actually grinding in right now, um, He's just now, even six years in, because, you know, distilling wasn't a passion of his, he's just now really starting to get a grasp for why I tell him to do the things that I tell him to do. You can tell him to do whatever you want, he'll do it, right? He just doesn't necessarily understand the process. So I think yeah. for a while he was getting fed up with me because, like, every three or four days I'd come in and be like, all right, try this. Let's do this. Let's change this. <laughs> Throw this shit in there, right? And uh, I'm sure I confused him more than a few times on why we were doing that, but... You know, you, you can't really can't really have a great understanding of your process if you if you don't know how to also break your process, right? Mm. Um, and I've certainly, luckily, I've never lost a match here for this story. I'll say that. So uh, now I've lost a lot of them at home over the years, <laughs> but uh, you know that's that's fifty gallons versus twelve hundred gallons, so that's uh, there's a little bit of an economic difference there. Almost certainly. Let's talk and about spirits of the French Lick. So what is it? Where is it? What do you do? Give us the background. Yeah, so we're, we're uh, in southern Indiana in Orange County, Indiana, the western side of Orange County, Indiana. So it's about an hour sort of northwest of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it's in a region that was once known as the Black Forest of Indiana. So the Black Forest of Indiana was uh, uh, the stilling uh, hub of basically mostly apple brandy distillers and weeded bourbon distillers. So it's Orange, Washington, Lawrence, Crawford, Harrison, Perry County. Uh, between 1855 and 1914, there were 155 plus legal distilleries in that six county region. Um, we're in a, a little uh, valley, two towns that are right next to each other, uh, West Baden and French Lick. And if you don't, if you aren't from here, you wouldn't realize that one town ended and another started. Um, okay. This is an old resort town. So the, the water, the groundwater, here in the valley itself is mineral water, um, particularly sulfur heavy water. Uh, so it drew a lot of people in uh, for health interest. And uh, because of that, what you ended up having here in the valley itself was uh, by the 1920s, you had a series of nine hotels slash spas and casinos. None of those casinos ever having been legal um, at the time. The only casino that's ever been legal here is the one that's here now. Uh, and it became sort of a meeting place for you know, the Kentucky distillers that come and move their wares to a lot of the Chicago gangsters, a lot of St. Louis gangsters. And it's it's equidistance, uh, basically to St. Louis, Indianapolis, almost to Louisville, Cincinnati, uh, but it's off the beaten path. So it's a good it's a good hideout spot for things like that to happen. Hmm. Um, but just a crazy rich history here. Um, legitimately, the, the tourist the tourist center when you come into West Baden, it's a, it's a retired poorhouse. Um, okay. And it's great because you can go in downstairs. It looks like a tourist center and all that stuff. But you go upstairs. This place didn't close until the 1970s. And they left the rooms exactly the same. So <laughs> <laughs> you literally walk in and see this 1970s style, you know, brothel 
uh, upstairs, which is pretty interesting. Um, nice. So we started. Have you, have you propagated any yeast from there? No, <laughs> not from the bottle. No, no, I have. Vagina, vagina, vagina yeast. Right. Yeah. Vagina yeast. Yeah. yeah. When you went there. No, I had to go there. Had to go there. It's it's a fair question, truthfully. I mean, you know, I feel like um, I feel like beer brewers sort of have that that market kind of corner, <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, but we started 2016. I was previously at Copper and Kings, uh, so kind of going back to that moonshine background to fill in the blanks here. Uh, when I was about 25, 26, something like that. I was, uh, I had converted the old tobacco farm into an organic produce farm. I was doing a lot of plant breeding is what I was really interested in because it's really hard to sell produce in rural Indiana. Everybody has a garden. Um, well, when you can't sell it and you realize that distilling is inherently agricultural, you start wondering, like, this weird corn that I bred, what's it taste like when you run it through the still? And so that got me more and more interested until I finally got up where I had a 150-gallon uh, pot still. It was actually an old uh, milk stirator tank, a stainless steel milk stirator tank I turned into a still. And uh, that was sitting in my parents' backyard. Um, and I just happened to coincide with the same time that the show Moonshiners had come on. Uh, so Moonshine suddenly becomes super popular. Um, mm -hmm. And we're, me and my then girlfriend, now wife, we're going to parties and people would come up with jars. And they shouldn't have known who I was or where it came from. And they were asking me to talk about them or to sign them and shit like that. And so my wife was like, you got to go get a job doing this or I'm out. So. I got on it. Uh, I basically sent resumes, the worst resumes anybody's ever seen in their life, because I had no real work history other than working for myself. Um, to every distillery that was opening in Louisville, time, because at the time there was no craft distilling law in Indiana. Uh, so I got hired on by Copper and Kings, and I certainly don't think they hired me because I was the best person for the job, but I'm probably the cheapest person that would take the job at the time. So. I was there for about two years and laid out all their distilling protocols, proto prototyped all their absence, uh, really headed up the Apple Brandy program. Um, and then I knew I wanted out of there because the culture just wasn't right for me. And I, I wanted to be on this side of the river, what I call the right side of the river. Uh, so right. I got the call from the Doty family uh, who owned the winery here. They've had the winery since 2005. Um, they knew, knew of me through some other uh, sources in the industry, Steve Beam of Limestone Branch and Lisa Wicker at the time was at Limestone Branch. Um, and I think at the time I was driving a box truck back from somewhere in Kentucky full of grapes. And I think I said yes before I even knew what they were offering. More or less. Just <laughs> so I came in here and got to, to came in. They'd already ordered the equipment and all that stuff. Um, but I came in during construction. I helped finish out all the construction and all that. Um, fixed problems as I went along. And then started laying out products and, and literally laid out every product that we have uh, from start to finish um, has all been kind of kind of my thing, which is what I'm obviously very passionate about. Um, so we are now actually as of, I think, maybe might have been yesterday, maybe tomorrow. I have to look, but six years almost to the day doing this podcast uh, since we distilled our first our first batch here. Wow. And do you still have some of that first batch oh, it's it's gone man that uh lee sinclair bourbon we've had we've been extremely fortunate with with ourselves i'll say that um especially for no more no more marketing than what we've done we're in we're in several markets now uh but fred medic uh he put the the gas to the lee sinclair uh bourbon a couple of years ago when he said it was the best bourbon outside of kentucky and uh and i've never seen anybody could just 
shake a market as quick as he does because he, as soon as he said that, I mean, we were sitting on seven pallets at the time. By the end of that week, they were gone. Uh, we dumped that product, 30 plus barrels of that product four times last year, and it sold out every time. Um, and then people started catching on to the Maddie Gladden because you'd run out of Lee Sinclair at the store. It's like, well, what else they do? Well, we, they got a high rye bourbon. Um, now that's become a problem. And then now the weeded bourbon's becoming a problem. It's becoming a little bit like we're always going to be a small distillery. We're never going to drop a column still in. We'll drop more pots in. But we're literally at the point, too, where we're selling as many single barrels as we are bulk product. Like last year, we did 200 plus single barrels. And this year, if we stay stay where we've been at so far this year, we'll be at about 300 single barrels a year. So we're almost at the point where you could you could literally become either an allocated or a single barrel only company, which is to me kind of exciting. I think that's kind of a cool idea. Um, yeah. That's what I told them when I came here. We came in, when I came in, they had a 1200 gallon pot still, six 1200 gallon fermenters, um, 600 gallon cooker, which actually plays into our profile because we'll split fermentations fill a half of a, a fermenter each day and then use two different yeast. One the first day, one the second day that kicks the first okay. one out. Yeah. Um, yep. so I, I told him when we started, I was like, you're, you're a nine, maybe a 10 state distillery. That's what, that's what this is. Like you could get the, you know, maybe 12 or 14 if you had two shifts, but that's as far as that's going to go unless you drop in a bunch more pot stills. And really that to me, that nine to 12 state sort of area, it's a little more comfortable. Like there's guys that are real successful. Like I love Pat Heist from Wilderness Trail, but and he'll get you know if he wanted to sell that place, I'm sure it could sell the 13th largest distillery in the U.S. right now. But if that were me, at night laying in bed, I'd be going, nope. This is this is like the area where people fuck up, right? Like you're not quite big enough, but you're not small anymore. So uh, mm -hmm. nine to twelve states for us is, I think, pretty good. So and they're dedicated states, right? It's not it's not like uh, I won't say any names, but there's distilleries over here that are, you know, we're in all 50 states. What are you in one store in each state? Who cares at that point? Yeah. And, and the thing with, 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 well, my understanding is, uh, cause we look at the, the U S market, you know, from Australia and we just see it's an absolute fucking minefield because every state is different and you've got these different systems. It's not like you just go in and sell your product in the U.S. at all. It's it's. Um, I mean, there's there's one distillery in Australia which is really powerhousing uh, in the U.S. and that's Starwood. I don't know if you've come across Starwood and uh, over there. I've seen it posted, but I'm not. I, I don't know that. I, and I haven't gone I haven't gone on my way to look for it. But I've seen it posted. and I hear people talking about it. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a bottle anywhere, but. I think Christy mentioned last when you were on our show that, that she's seen it and had it before. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. She did. But yeah, um, shelf somewhere. Yeah, Luke will have one there. Um, so yeah, Starwood actually just won um, overnight at the San Fran um, uh, World Spirits Comp. Uh, 12, 12 medals. Wow. Which is yeah, exactly. It's freaking insane, right? Yeah. Yes, because San Fran is one of the few, uh, to me, San Fran and um, Denver International, those are, yeah. in the U.S., those are the two that I take somewhat seriously, depending on who's on the panels. But those two are, I certainly, they have a better track record than almost any other competi of the competitions in the United States, in my opinion. So, um that fucking head got way bigger there for a minute. I don't know what's going on. Jesus, what are you doing, man? Lost his stickiness. 
<laughs> yeah, what happened to Boston? He leaves, he leaves a shot and we're all over the place. Right. <laughs> oh. um, when, you, when you were talking about Pat and Wilderness Trail, uh, and, and when you, and, and, and for people that don't know, Alan's got a, his own podcast, which in some ways we didn't realise our, our little podcast, uh, Shooting the Shit, Aussie Craft Distillers, is very, very much like what you do. Very similar, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just, uh, you talk to, to just other lean a little bit to the right. Uh, who, me? Yeah. Is that better? That's, yeah. That's better, okay. Yeah, so so what, what we do in, in Australia um, with our little podcast is very, very similar uh, to, to what you're doing. And, you know, I, I watch your, your, your podcast, your show, and I'm just... I love how you talk to people in the industry and, and it just breaks down barriers and people get to mm. see the, the, the real people behind and what motivates them and the passion comes through. Right. So Pat, I was just going back to go back to Pat before I forget when he was talking about how he started and how his distillery grew and the volume, the volume that they pump out now is just ridiculous. It's isn't it? It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Uh, they're doing they're doing well. It's it's everywhere. It's all over the place, you know. And and they're able, you know, they've got the the levity now with the with the amount of the volume that they have, you know, that they can everything that they can do, uh, you know, their main mainline stuff. It, it can be an everyday drinker for everybody in the United States plus internationally. I mean, they're they're literally at that point where, you know, as he said on our show last time, you know, they're in multiple countries in Europe now. Um, so yeah. you know he, he's it, it's a he's in a good place with all that stuff and they're they're building warehouses like crazy as well um which is great i mean he literally i think they started with a, a 250 gallon pot still is what they started with and they yeah. started just shortly before we did so um, of course they had a, i think they had a plan laid out whereas our plan was like nine or ten states <laughs> right we'll be happy with nine or ten states and that's where it'll be at so um I, 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 you know, congratulations to him, and I'm I'm glad that he's doing it. And then the other part of me is like, I'm really glad that it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, then um, uh, another one who you introduced me uh, through Distillers Talk uh, is Todd Leopold, and the Three Chamber Still. Yeah. And over here, there's a handful of a handful of us who look at it and go wow that's not a pot still that's not a column still that's that's something very very unique so for those who don't know about three chamber uh, still and and the uniqueness of it and and the the, the flavor generation can you alan because i know you're it's a passion thing of yours as well can you give a a bit of an explanation of a three chamber and why it's exciting a lot of people including uh, Fred, I, I saw uh, Fred's um, um, interview on on YouTube where he, he did a tasting of the three chamber pot, uh, three chamber still whiskey, and then talked to Todd after. Yeah. And Fred was just he's bouncing off the ceiling when he was tasting it. He really was. And he should be. And the, and the cool thing is, and and all props to Todd for for bringing that thing back. You know, uh, there've been a couple guys that talked about it for a while, and Todd beat everybody to it. Um, so there's a, a bunch of designs for these things out there. Uh, they were, they're kind of a weird modal system in between 
a pot and a column in some ways, but really they're, they're still a batch system. They're just a rapid fired batch system. It's a rapid fired distillation is what it is. Yep. Um, they have all the positive attributes of a pot still, but with some added benefits. And so the idea is that you're basically, uh, and I should also add this, these three chambers, the one thing I think that nobody has pointed out yet in the U.S., these three chambers really, uh, they came from, if you ever read about over here, anybody back in the day, quote unquote, running on a log with a wooden still, uh, yep. those wooden stills were very, very similar in concept to what a three chamber is. So they really, they really kind of came out of that concept. But the idea is that you basically have um, a steam generation on the bottom. And as you can see, you've got the, uh, that one's got two active chambers and a drain chamber on the bottom. And the top chamber basically is both a uh, beer preheater um, and a little bit of a, a deflamator as well there. So you're more or less introducing your, on this system, on Leopold's, and the other ones are a little bit different, but you're introducing the mash into that top preheater chamber um, you're heating that up, and then as you go, you're going to drop that into the first chamber. Steam's going to come in through the bottom, and it's basically going to act just like a, almost like a thumper or a pot still, where it's a steam-driven uh, mechanism pushing all that alcohol out. Once you've exhausted uh, your cuts, however you want, and everybody's going to run them differently, but typically the way they were run in the past is on that first chamber, you might make your heads cut. After you make your heads cut, you drop everything to chamber two, refill chamber one with what's in the beer, beer preheater, refill the beer preheater. And then off chamber one, now you've enriched, enriched the alcohol in chamber one with the alcohol that's already there. Now you're going to do heads and hearts, drop everything in chamber two into chamber three. Everything in chamber three is basically exhausted. Chamber two is going to become your tails. You refill chamber one, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a line fire sort of thing. But what happens is hmm. as it runs, you're more or less not only stripping all the alcohol out. By the time everything hits the bottom of that column, what is left, you've already taken the tails out of, the alcohol is exhausted. The grain is still there, it's still time underneath heat, and you're beyond tails, as opposed to a pot still where it's hard to get beyond those tails. So you're essentially, at that point, extracting the essential oil of the raw material that you started with and breaking it down and esterifying it via the heat that comes through. That's then coming up through those J channels, bubbling into each one of those chambers as it goes up and then viewing the alcohol in those chambers that's gonna be distilled off the of spirit with those unique characteristics. Um, and I don't think that this still was designed for that purpose. Now Todd's, obviously Todd had a very good understanding when he designed it, um, yeah. he could play off of that. Originally, I don't think that's what they were designed for. They were designed to be a more efficient pot still is what they were really designed to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but they obviously have some unique flavor profiles and with Todd's stuff in particular, you get a lot of like lavender sort of characteristics. There's an oiliness to the distillate. Um, yep. It's not fusel oil. It's not anything like that. It's it's just this oil texture, and it has something to do with those essential oils, in my opinion, that are trapped in that rye, being you know reimbued over and over into that alcohol over and yep. over. Again. And different likes of different people have different setups. Um, so you would see if you go back and look at some of the old diagrams as opposed to Todd's diagram. Uh, you'll see some of them that run to a thumper. You'll see some that run to a doubler. You'll see some that are just a straight still, a straight still itself. Um, usually, uh, sometimes even with an air-cooled deflamator on top of them, uh, and then they would collect all of the stuff as a stripping run, and then run it back through a pot still. So now you're dealing with all kinds of different flavor modalities that you can get out of that one piece of equipment. The only really shitty thing about them, and the reason that they died off, 
but it's two reasons. Prohibition killed it, and in Prohibition being as long as it is, you lost generational knowledge. There's a whole generation of distillers there that were out of the business and they didn't get to pass that stuff on. The other yeah. thing with, with the with the chamber still, and again, depending on the design you're running, I keep saying design that you're running, and talking about Todd's throws me off a little bit because I have a little prototype pre-chamber, and it's not set up the same way. So I get, if I, when I see Todd's, I have to rewire my shit. Um, but they're they're inefficient. Again, inefficiency equals flavor, right? Yeah. It's literally every 20 minutes you're making cuts. Every 20 minutes you're making cuts. Every 20 minutes. And everything, it's it's a lot of steam. It's a lot of pressure. There's a lot. First time I ran mine, I'll tell you, there's a lot of weird fucking noises. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> what is going on in that thing. Uh, you know, I had so, to- so, so it was designed to be a more efficient pot still that is inherently more inefficient. Yes, exactly. But it's, it's pressurized. Yep. yep. Yeah, every one of those chambers. Some are under, so the weird thing is as you run, um, and Todd talked about this with his too, because I, I thought maybe, you know, I was, I was hoping I could avoid this because it scares the shit out of me. But as you run, different chambers are under pressure and different chambers are under vacuum, right? And so you go to start dumping chambers and now you start getting like water hammering and all that fun stuff, right? And again, the the turbidity of everything that's in that column is insane. It's Again, the closest thing I can compare it to as growing up in the moonshiner would be a thump barrel. It's the same, each chamber is the same principle, essentially. Uh, Just think of it as, as, you know, three three thump barrels stacked on top of each other, feeding each other is what you're dealing with, so. um, You're You're cutting, and I didn't realize this until now, you cut and drop. Into, into the next chamber. That's the way I run mine. Now, now Todd's, I don't know if he, I, I presume that he's doing his that way. I don't right. know for sure. So like okay. I'll, I'll preload mine with uh, with water is what yeah. I typically do, the bottom couple chambers and then fill the top chamber uh, just to get the installation started. That first chamber, I'll cut the heads off of then drop the second chamber. Then I'll start doing heads, hearts, tails, heads, hearts, tails, heads, hearts, each chamber as you, as you mm-hmm. add back in. So what sort of flavors are you pulling? What, what, how excited are you with the results and what you're getting off it? Your your one I'm talking about. So my my little one, it, it's got some things I need to um, I need to adjust on it yet, and I'm hoping to scale it up for adventure here in the in the in the future. Um, yeah. The distillate itself, I'm extremely happy with. So the reason that I'm playing with it is not so much rye whiskey. Uh, so the two places where the three chamber was was majorly popular in the United States were in Pennsylvania. And in southern indiana so southern indiana having that apple brandy uh heritage most of the apple brandy distillers are double pot still apple brandy distillers until yeah. about 1905 and then they start switching over to wooden three chambers uh hmm. so that's what i'm really playing around with is apple brandy on the three chamber and so my average proof off that three chamber without running a doubler i'm running a deflamator on top of it's what i'm doing which is another interesting thing where you figure out pressure and all that stuff too uh, so my average proof off of that's anywhere between 115 and 120 is what I'm getting at the moment, uh, yep. which is exactly what I'm after. I want that that lower proof, um, that really heavy aromatic component, that oily component, and I'm I've been running apple mash brandy on mine is what I'm doing. So I'm running solids and all. So uh, as opposed to to you know taking a, and making a cider or a juice, we're grinding the whole apple, running the whole thing off, and uh, I've been extremely impressed. Yeah, so there's uh, that's from the Seagram's book, I believe. That was a, a wooden three chamber. 
Uh, mine is a little more similar to this than than um, what it is to Todd's. Uh, yep. That I don't have the thumper in between, and I have a deflamator on top. Hmm. And a uh, question from William: Do these stills go bang more often? <laughs> I, I, here's what I would say: If you're going to get one that's copper, you get it from somebody that knows what the hell they're doing. Um, mine's stainless. I feel pretty comfortable with that. Um, I think they, I think they, they probably could because the pressure is not so much explosions, but you know, pressure. How do you? Yeah, at the end of the run and all that, and yeah, it, Jesus, yeah, the pressure component, you you really have to know yeah, what you're there's doing. There's a lot of forces going on in it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 and I actually, it you also know, adds a, a huge layer of complexity to it as well. If you're doing your cuts, uh, heads, hearts, and tails at each different point, you don't want to be drinking whilst you're operating the still. And you can't be doing anything else while you're operating. That's and that's what I like about it is is that it is inefficient. You get those flavors, but also as a distiller, it's more it becomes more challenging because instead mm. of oh I know you know I'm gonna make my heads cut here, my hearts here, etc. Now it's every 20 minutes, and you got to be on your game. You got to be paying attention to it. Now that's a plus and a negative. That means you're tied to that still for however long you're planning on running. You know, mm. if you're running a 300 gallon per minute, you're going to be there until you're done with that 300 gallon per minute, right? That is a lot of watching a pot boil. It really is, but at least there's at least there's movement and thought involved as opposed to you know I love yeah, pot it makes, I love it makes pot great noises. Yeah, you're right. The pot stills are uh, are definitely watching water boil a lot of times. You know, so. mm. like there's there's wow. um so, so I've I've got a real personal fascination and just want to understand more about uh, three chamber still, and so I've I've been talking to different people in that. Um, oh, Nick Hope, you know Nick Hope, yeah. right? So Nick and I have bad ideas around all, all the time. Anyway, I've, I've uh, been having discussions with my um, uh, good mate of mine who's a distiller who built my still. So he's a fabricator in, in, the, uh, in the wine industry and he's the most prolific still builder in Australia. And him and I have, have been batting around and going, why can we not build one of these fuckers? Yeah. Just a small one. And, and just see, because the, the one thing that, that really sticks in my head, and you said it, is it's a it's a whiskey terroir machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's mm. exactly the way that I would think of it. It's mm. you know, I, I think you can take any mash bill and put through that thing, and it's not going to taste like it does in a pot still or a column, right? It's it's going to be its own unique beast, and I think where it really in my opinion, where it's really going to shine, and I think Todd has the same opinion too, because you can't, you obviously yield wise, you, you're not getting a ton off of it again in efficiency. Yep. But I think where it would really shine at is making uh, distillate for blends. And I think those blends could be yeah. five, 10%, you know, three chamber stuff, and it's going to be a noticeable difference. We had exactly the same discussion uh, the other day with, with, with someone. It's it, it, you have your pot still, you have your three chamber still, and what comes off your three chamber is super concentrated, super intensity, and it, it's it's the salt and pepper that you add to what's coming off your pot still. And that uh, seems to be typically how it was used traditionally was for blending as much as anything. Now, there were pure three chamber rise and things of that nature. And, and just like Fred reviewing, you know, Todd's three chamber rye and he loved it and I loved it. Right. But we're pretty damn geeky about whiskey. I'm not so sure that the average consumer would appreciate it the same way that we appreciate it. Right. But now 
if it were there in, in smaller amounts in a distillate where it was, uh, you know, a hint of this or that or the other, whatever, I think that certainly yep. the, the common consumer would understand it. Yeah. Mm. So if you're, if you're, if you're going to blend your, your three chamber into your pot still, is it still a single malt? Yes. Yeah. If it's single know. grain, single distillery, it's single malt. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would. I wouldn't even know. I, I'm so confused by the TTV categories over here as it is because, like, part of me just goes, "Who fucking cares as long as it's good, right?" As long mm -hmm. as you're being honest about it, <laughs> you know. So mm -hmm. just tell people what the process is; they'll figure it out. Again. Yeah, transparency. One one of the things that we talk about in Australia is um, so the Australian industry is just absolutely taking off, right, big time. Um, when I started, there were 60 distilleries. There's now 420 odd distilleries, wow. I think. I reckon it'll be 500 probably this time next year, right? Um, but if we if we just talk about um, just whiskey, because that's that's my my main bag. Um, in Australia, the only restriction we really have is two years on wood. It doesn't even have to be oak, right? So we look at we look at Scotland and, and we look at the, the restrictions in Scotland from a barrel selection standpoint. You know, they can only use things that have been proven historically, right? And then right. we look at America and we go and, and I'm talking bourbon particularly, right? You have to go into brand new new American uh, white oak barrels, uh, brand new charred, right? Yep. In Australia, we can go and get a cognac barrel or a tequila barrel or a fucking penguin shit barrel. Uh, doesn't matter, right? And we can make our whiskey. So we think we've got a really interesting, unique uh, point of difference there, which which Australian distillers play on. But oh, like uh, there where we've got our our Pedro Jimenez. Barrel. Yeah, straight in, straight yeah. into a. A, a Pedro Jimenez Spanish sherry old wood barrel, bang, done. Doesn't have to go into anything else, right? Um, but we can go in. So guys over here, um, I'll give you a name. Lee Atwood uh, Backwoods Distillery in particular is doing red gum, which is a hardwood uh, Australian um, uh, wood, right? And getting some really interesting, unique flavor profiles. So that sort of shit's really, really exciting. In America, and I'm still trying to get my head around this because I hear different things from different people. The single malt category, right? They're not restricted in the same sense as the bourbon producers, are they? They, they can go into a different barrels. They don't have to go into new American white oak, charred, freshly charred barrels. Yeah, as of, as of right now, they don't because it hasn't become an official TTB recognized category, uh, which that's that's what they're working on right now. Um, yeah. And I, I hope that they don't put any restrictions like that on there. And, and let me also say this because it, it may not be known in the in the wider world, but so that bourbon restriction to uh, uh, New Oak Barrel uh, that was that was a, a relatively late invention to the game. Uh, right before prohibition basically to favored lumber industry and now we're we're seeing the aftermath of that which is you know again the distilling industry is growing there's more and more barrels going out 
uh, less and less oak being planted. And so, yep. you know, here in Indiana, they harvest a lot of oak. And I, I know a couple of guys around here, uh, timber followers around here, that they won't touch oak. Unless there's something wrong with the tree, they won't cut it down. Uh, so at some point, and I'll, this is sacrilegious for an American distiller to say, I hope they get rid of that stupid fucking barrel thing. Because it, to me, it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't yeah. at all. Um, now it's already starting to happen, isn't it? There's political pressure to, yeah. uh, being brought to bear now about changing that regulation. And if that happens, that has a massive knock-on effect in Scotland. Yeah, because absolutely. They lose their, their, their ready access to used barrels. But like here at our distillery, that's one of the reasons why we do so many products too is because there's nothing I hate worse than letting go of a barrel. If I could, you know, there should, if you're a good distiller and you're good, you're good at managing what you have, uh, you know, if you work at the distillery for 40 years, there should still be barrels in your inventory, not with necessarily the original product in them, but barrels in your inventory that were there the day that you started. There's no reason for them not to be, right? Because they can be used multiple times. I mean, the, the and there's several things we do. So we'll recycle barrels, like, you know, we'll use one for bourbon, then we'll kick it over to corn whiskey, or we might kick it over to absinthe or uh, something of that nature, um, and then use it two times, maybe it'll go to brandy after that. We've used them up three times and then you can take them and send them to the cooperage, let them shave an eighth of an inch off that thing and uh, rechar it, two more uses. You know, when that's done, send it in, have them shave that thing down another eighth of an inch. Now you've got a neutral barrel, which is great for, you know, uh, basically, you know, stopping your maturation short of oxidization uh, and just letting it set, so. Um, now we do. We are lucky enough. We get to play around with finishing bourbon, which becomes controversial sometimes in some of the bourbon circles. But uh, uh, I do. I do get a lot of odd barrels in. I, I'm actually when I get off here with you guys, I'm going into the uh, the H3 room over here, and I have two um, mezcal barrels that I'm mm. playing with. Two Espadine mezcal barrels that came in. Uh, that I think I'm going to kick our uh, our one of our high rise bourbons into one of them. So it's already been in, in New Oak for four years, and then one yep. of our Lee Sinclair uh, four grain bourbons into the other one. That's already been in New Oak for four years, and uh, we'll see how it does with that uh, mezcal finish. So mm, that would have a nice earthiness to it. We did. Uh, so we one of the things that we did. I've got several barrels of it back here. We just released in this gift shop only. Um, I think it was four years ago now we did an apple brandy and we did it like we like if we were cutting an apple brandy for moonshine so no heads no tails as clean as it could be and uh instead of kicking that in the new oak we kicked it into once used tequila barrels and it hmm. matured completely in once used tequila barrels so we released two of them last year three years old one of them we did at like 135.1 proof and i thought there's no market for you know hazmat apple brandy the thing was gone in three fucking days Three days it was gone. Like, it, it surprised the shit out of me. I'm like, okay, apparently there's uh, A, people are after apple brandy, and B, they wanted it high proof. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was all I could do in my snarkiness designing the label. We called it uh, uh, complexity is what we called it. Like, almost wanted to call it unwanted children just for fun. <laughs> there is, if there's one thing that I've certainly learned, there is a market for almost everything and uh in uh my my local friendship circle i've discovered that the uh the vietnamese community don't care about flavor they don't care about how it was made what it is it's all about the proof 
the higher the proof, the better the spirit. I could see that. I could see that. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Um, so there's a there's a couple of um, Vietnamese distillers over here. One of them makes a really good rice whiskey. I'll give him that. Uh, but some of these other guys that are playing around with rice over here, I would want that at a pretty high proof myself because I a lot of it. And I know that you know the palate's different, right? Their palate's entirely different than ours is. You know, in in, in you know quote unquote Western world. Um, I can't do it. I can't do it. Like, if it smells like butterscotch and it don't taste like fucking butterscotch, I'm not. Yeah. No. Uh, 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 no. Pass. What are you looking for? Uh, what are you going for, boys? No, I'm just finding something else to drink. What are you drinking? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to finish off this one. Where is it? Oh, my God. I've got a Chinese rice. There. Oh, there it is. Uh, Baiju. Yeah, it, it, when Luke comes back, then we're going to cut to Todd. I want to talk about that and collaboration be between distillers because, Todd, you can explain that. Yeah. Oh, that stuff. Can I tell you a story about that stuff, right? It's so, fucking awful. Oh, it yeah. Is. The bottle is like a Kingsford kerosene lighter thing. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. I, I worked in the in the 90 i worked and lived in hong kong worked in china right and anyway uh one of my customers uh it was a joint venture a chinese uk joint venture and they had it was a printing operation and hey, can you guys give me just one second i've got a still alarm going off i'll be right back yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. take the alarm explosions this is probably a really good time for us to segue into our sponsors yeah do it now yeah, do that quick boys Yep, yep. Let's put it up. Uh, oh, I slipped. Hold on. <laughs> We're going to bring that out in a minute. I actually tested. <laughs> <laughs> we got one. Let's get another one, eh? <laughs> oh, yes. He's out of the room. He doesn't know what's coming up for him. Now, I reckon Burnsy could probably make a pretty damn good three-chamber still. Um, yeah. I wonder whether he has. No, no, no. no he only yeah, asked yeah. our, our seven viewers. Theoretically, and and look, if you if you need to get a barrel, of course you will definitely go to barrel brokers. As you do, uh, as I do. He's got all. He's got all the good barrels. All, the, all good barrels. the good ones. Actually, to 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 just add to that, for five no for seven years, I've always wanted to lay an Armagnac barrel and a a conversation with Robbie Tugnot and mm -hmm. I mentioned I'd love to get an Armagnac barrel and then four months later he rings me up and he goes mate got your barrel I go what barrel and he goes the Armagnac barrel you wanted and he got it nice uh, how cool uh just um yeah just on the baju so so I lived in in Hong Kong and spent time in China right Anyway, so I had a joint venture customer and they they had a, a big grand opening of uh, stage two production. And so the UK side of it, they invited all their top customers uh, over to the grand opening in China, right? And a lot of these guys were, that they hadn't really been out of UK or Europe, right? And it was the first time in Asia for them, right? 
So anyway, the, the Chinese uh, partner just laid on this huge, massive banquet, you know, with the Chinese dragons and the whole shebang, right? And the baju, right? And with that drink, there's only one way to drink it, and that's gum by, knock it, knock it back, right? I you don't swore, want it to touch your tongue. No, it's <laughs> not deadly. It's not deadly. Anyway, so they, so they had, um, uh, we had the big banquet dinner. At later in the night, you had Chinese opera being plays played. You had businessmen from the UK standing on tables and trying to sing Chinese opera. Right, who woke up the next day were totally embarrassed, had no idea what had happened. That buzz you is dangerous shit. That's all I can say. We're going to figure out who you need to call first and apologize to. <laughs> I don't remember what I did, but I know I did something fucking stupid. So, <laughs> I was, where's my pants? I had pants. I'm sure I had pants. <laughs> Have I seen Tom anywhere? <laughs> uh, I gotta, I gotta tell you a story, Alan. You'll love this, right? So, little, little project we were distilling honey or mead, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, as we're distilling mead, and we did a lot of lot of um, uh, me and a, a meadster mate of mine, right? And we did a lot of research, and funny enough, with the U.S. Honey Board and uh, webinars and, and asking questions. Yeah. Anyway, we were adamant we did not want to produce vodka, right? So when we did the the second distillation, um, it, it, the there was a lot of sulfur that came through, right? So I thought, that's it. We've fucked all, all the high-end aromatics, right? And it blew off a bit and it was okay. And then we went into uh, fours, right? And so decided to start doing micro cuts as opposed to just fours, hearts, and, and faints. So we did micro cuts, got into the hearts, did a big hearts run, and then actually did a couple of micro cuts and then actually did a second hearts run, right? And it was almost like a rum. We went quite deep. And then we did more micro cuts and we went into faints. So we had all these five litre jugs just lined up, right? The next day came came out and I don't know, it was nine o'clock in the morning and thought, okay, um, we're going to work out what goes with what. What goes in the hearts, what goes in the faints, what goes in the pores, which meant had to sample a lot of little jugs right. of of spirit right and i don't spit i generally don't spit so by 12 o'clock i was fucked right absolutely fucked because all the samples i can vouch for that because he kept phoning me at work with these (laughs) great ideas (laughs) i can't even hear what you're saying mate just drink some water yeah. But um, drunk, go home. It, it was um it was a yeah it was a really interesting experience and it was one of those ones that sort of creep up on you because you're 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 deep in the moment you're tasting you're you're you're, you're comparing and then all of a sudden you're fucked <laughs> like, that'll that will absolutely happen uh it happens to me here a lot uh when i'm doing blends so like when yeah. i'm doing bourbons it's not that big of a deal and when I say blends, I mean the blends for like the bottled and bond products. So the bourbons, they, they only go on the barrel, you know, 105. So they'll come out if they come from the warehouse down here. They might be 107 to 114. 
the warehouse up on the hill, they lose proof, so they might be 98 to 103. Right. But you get into dumping like 30 barrels of apple brandy, and we barrel that at proof off the still. So it's going into the barrel at 135, and it's coming back out at like 147. And you got to face through 30 of them fucking things. Like it's a two day, it's a two day extravaganza of horse shit back here when that happens. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> so only bad decisions are being made at that point. But only good taste decisions. That's that's right. You got that's how you got. That's why you divide it into yeah. poor life decisions, brilliant taste decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> all, all about all about the taste. Now, Todd. Yes. Hold up that bottle that you had, Country to Coast, and Helen, yeah. be interested in your take on this. So what Todd's holding up, right, is a blend from two distilleries Was, in Australia. And so it's Flurio Distillery in South Australia, and it's, it's Blackgate Distillery in New South Wales, right? And good friends. So... They got together, collaborated, and, and and I've done a collaboration with Riverborne Distillery, which is another New South Wales distillery, and I'm about to do a collaboration with two other distilleries. So it's becoming quite, I would say common, but it's becoming uh, more prevalent in Australia in this collaborative sharing of our spirits and that. Does that happen in the U.S.? It's starting to, to some extent. So the big one that was has been obviously we talked about Leopold earlier, but Leopold and Dickel, which is which is cool because Dickel's a huge brand, right? Yeah. Uh, so they actually took some Dickel rye that they had had distilled themselves. I think it was fourteen years old, and then they did a blend with some of the Todd Leopold Three Chamber stuff, which is oh. really cool because now you got a big company and a little company, you know, doing the, that together. Um, which yes. is a lot more people to the three chamber sort of profile. And again, that blending with the three chamber, I think works well. Um, you do see a little bit of it with craft distilleries, mostly, mostly kicking around barrels back and forth, but I'm hoping that there will be more blending like that. Now, the really thing, the thing that's happening over here is we obviously have a lot of non-distiller producers, right? Who, you know, people who are buying from MGP and, and rebottling or whatever. Some of those guys now are doing, using MGP stuff the way that's supposed to be used, in my opinion, which is in a blend like Penelope. But there are a couple of groups that are now buying barrels from craft distillers. Matter of fact, we just sold one to a group I'm really excited about. Um, and they're making blends of craft whiskey um, and then using that as a way to inform people of what craft whiskey is. And so you'll be able to actually look at the label. You'll see that it says, you know, Spitz French Lick and whatever other distilleries, percentage, mash bill, all that stuff. And I think that's a really cool idea because some of the stuff that we're making, you know, some of us small guys, you know, it's so off the wall, they, they could be, and they're so flavor intense, they could be used as component whiskeys for blending. So it makes a lot of sense to do that, I think. Um, and I think the more, you know, uh, the more differences there are, like if there's two companies that work together, uh, you know, the more opposite those two products are, the cooler it is when they come together, right? Because you don't want two products that are, you know, the taste exactly the same anyways. You know, you want two yeah. people. Like here in the U.S., it'd be interesting because, um, and you, you guys may or may not be aware of this, but like it's true of brewing to a lesser degree and of winemaking. But with the spirits, you can, I really see it. So you have kind of these three unique cultures, right? So you have like East Coast, Midwest slash South, and then West Coast. And the styles are completely different. And I see it a lot like in our in our markets. So most of our states are southern states. For some reason, it's all states south of us, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, et cetera. 
uh, but I see it big time when we do competitions. So, you know, if you we were talking about Denver and then we were talking about um, Sanford, yeah, uh, yep. a long ago. So depending on who's on those panels at the time, whether or not they're East Coast based or West Coast based, that affects our score majorly on the same. Uh, yeah, if it's West Coast guys, they shit on everything I make. Everything, right? If it's East Coast guys, they're all about it. So it's, yeah, there's, it'd be interesting to see, you know, those three regions kind of work together a little more. So, wow. Yeah. An East Coast, West Coast, Southern blend. Yep. Yep. I, um, so everyone. Tell, tell Alan about the blend, the big blend, the Australian 30 year anniversary. <laughs> that This will blow your mind, Alan. So basically, it was, what was it, 20, no, 30, 36 different distillers. I think it was donated. 36. I think wow. it was, I'm pretty sure it was 36 different distillers donated five liters of their, their spirit. And um, they were blended together to produce a 30-year celebratory release. So um, will the blending all be equal or will there be somebody actually... Really, really, really good question, mate. Really good yeah. question. There, there was two blends that were done. One was they took everyone's product and blended it equally. They tasted the individual products and then decided to blend it all together, right? That was blend one. And blend two was it was modified based on flavor profiles and they, and they pulled it together. Um, we have only tasted – oh, no, we tasted the um, – the big blend, which was basically it all put together, it was. So that it was the glass that we were given, was it? Was the yeah, big yeah, yeah, on the night at the, at the Australian Distillers Conference. Now, to be honest, a lot of us have been drinking all day because it's an Australian Distillers Conference, so we probably we probably didn't do it justice. And this was a bit late in the night when this yeah, came out. When it came out, it's but conceptually, conceptually, a thirty-year-old whiskey, right? Um, totally collaborative, so pretty cooler. I think that's that's really cool stuff. I think there should be a lot more of that sort of stuff for sure. So, I mean, why, you know, why wouldn't a distiller get excited about that, right? I mean, unless unless you just know there's somebody in the blend where you're like, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. We're just screwing over someone's trade, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the you know drinking all day at Australian Distillers Conference. So I'm presuming. You guys do festivals and stuff like that too, like tasting yeah. festivals. So, yeah. and you guys are probably the same way because you're distillers. That's how distillers are. But if you go to a, a distilling festival in the United States uh, with craft distillers, it's funny because you can watch us all. Like we're there, we'll engage with the customers, we'll talk to the customers, but we're real like we're looking around, like who's yeah. over there, who's over, like we can't wait for this shit to end because we're because we all know That's when the good stuff comes that, out. You know, Exactly, and I'm I'm going home with some bottles that aren't mine tonight. That's what's that's what's going down. <laughs> <laughs> this, the special under the table samples. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We 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 have uh, we have so a, a, a mentor of mine, uh, a a whiskey rock god in Australia, Brian Hollingworth, uh, makes mm. uh, whiskey. He's been making it for the last thirteen years now, I think 12, 13 years, and so also that's, that's Matt Gate that was part of part of this this um. Bottle. They're, they're part of that collaboration. Anyway, they have um, a camp, World Whiskey Day, right? Um, and it's a big deal. So he he's uh, out in the country, middle of nowhere, um, 
We do it in winter. It's a long fucking it's a long, way away. It's a long fucking way away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a five-hour drive from Sydney, uh, and people do it. It's a pilgrimage, uh, and it's just a night of celebration. Big fires, smoked meats, beer, whiskey, and whiskey, uh, and whiskey. Lots of whiskey, whiskey, yes. But a lot of distillers go as well, and uh, you know we, we just have so much fun. We, we we and we've done we've actually done events where it's just distillers, uh, and that's even better. That's yeah, when you, you, know, you get a whole group of distillers together and just yeah, you share the love, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Ten, ten, ten distillers and fifty-two opinions. <laughs> don't you, don't you love those feisty arguments? You go, yes, I know this way and. You should do it this way. Why? <laughs> right. Explain it to me. I'm gonna need you to break it down. Yeah, I did, and I, I have the mistake of having those conversations when I'm drinking, and I'm like, at some point in, in the night, I'm just like, can we talk about this tomorrow? Because I don't have the brain power to do this shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Something I I'm always uh, interested in. When, when talking with Americans, is your impression of Australia. Oh, here we go. And... <laughs> Hang on, I've got to pick up a bottle. <laughs> and a lot, of, a lot of Americans think that Australia is, is just a very dangerous place, that everything's trying to kill you. What's, what's your impression of Australia? See, see it, I guess it depends on the part of Australia you're talking about, right? So, like, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll yep. go along with the um, maybe everything is trying to kill you to some degree, but like, I'm more worried about that being, and I, this is not just Australia thing. This is a being from Indiana and a landlocked state thing. Mm-hmm. Anywhere where there's fucking sharks, I don't want to be uh, on the beach. They're like rocket yeah, sharks, right. man, because they can smell. They know I've grown up in the Midwest. They can smell the corn. <laughs> Right, they don't get that all the time. They know. Yeah, it's something different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a vegetable for them. I mean, that, yeah, right. that damn stupid Hoosier over there. I'm jumping. You know, I'll jump out of the water and get his ass. Uh, no, so it's actually funny. So I tend to think of, I guess, uh, I think of Australia because being a historian to some extent, I think of Australia the same way that I think of, of Scotland and the United States. I think that there's there's sort of three. Three countries, and even Ireland to some extent, there's three countries where you where there's an attitude that's a little bit of fuck you, and it's righteous in a certain way, and it should mm-hmm. be. Now we're, we're, some of our cultures are obviously losing that, which that's a whole different story that we don't obviously mm-hmm. get into because of politics and all that stuff. But that, that rebellious culture of kiss my ass, I'm doing it my way. I think mm-hmm. very much so. That's that's the way I tend to think of Australia in general. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily come down to like. Yes, the animals are trying to kill you. I mean, I know you guys are fighting for your life like against dinosaurs and shit every day. I, I respect that. Uh, but when I think of the people of Australia, that's really what I think of is a little mm. bit more. So know. just on, on the topic of dangerous creatures, what would be your the first thing that comes to mind? As I fucking hate spiders, man. I hate spiders. spiders? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. We've got yeah, they're not one of my big things, things either, really. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, like, I don't care if they're venomous, like, because I fucking hate them and they scare the shit out of me. Like, I, I'll play with a snake all day long. That's fine. Like, I, I love reptiles, right? Yeah. Fucking, it could be a harmless fucking. If there'd be a, we have wolf spiders here. You guys probably have some kind of wolf spider. Here. Oh, yeah, yeah, wolf yeah. yeah. yeah they. So in the wintertime here, they come up through your bathroom drains and shit, right? 
Yeah. I'm gonna die one day because I'm gonna go take a shower and this fucking thing's gonna come up through the fucking drain and I'm gonna break my neck trying to get out, you know, get out of the fucking bathroom away from this fucking harmless <laughs> piece of shit. But I can't imagine like being some of the things that you guys have. <laughs> so oh, we've, we've we've got we've got some some unique ones, but the the worst the worst thing we've got in Australia is the drop bear. It's just the fucking horrible beast, isn't it, Luke? Uh, and have you have you heard of a drop bear? So I haven't heard of a drop bear, but I do believe that we have a similar story to that here in, in Hoosier occupied northern Kentucky, and we call them drop bears or honey bears. What are yours do? What are yours do? Hang on, let's hear. What's what's a who's a honey bear? What's it do? That they were just they're just just up in a in a tree, right? And they're 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 like little black bears, right? And they're just mm -hmm. they just drop out of the fucking tree and murder you. Right. Yep. Do they look like this? <laughs> no, that's clearly an Australian fucking. Yeah. Yeah. He's pissed. Look at him. Pissed. Yeah. You know why? Yeah. You know why he's mad? He's actually cuddly. He just saw a fucking spider. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> that's a drop there. That's a drop yeah. there. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Those things will fuck you up. <laughs> it looks like it. <laughs> Pretty sure that's what I look like after when, when I have a hangover, right? <laughs> no, clearly I'm not okay. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we've actually got to go back to there was a question uh, a little <laughs> while ago, just yeah. to put it back onto an actual topic. Um, <laughs> uh, Steve. Uh, Pannon is asking about tax. We get taxed out the fucking nose. It's ridiculous. Yeah. What are your tax rates like as a producer? So that was that was one of the real problems starting up a distillery early on um, was the federal tax. Of course, we have state tax and all that stuff too. Um, but the original federal tax for distilled spirits, not the original tax, but the one that we were under, uh, was thirteen dollars and fifty cents a proof gallon, which is pretty outstanding you know so they they changed that a couple of years ago we got that changed um so and it, it changed across the point seven eight three point eight liters right yep carry on out we're just kidding yep, sorry oh it's okay um so we got that changed and, and they changed it across the board for all distillers craft distillers and large distillers both i think it's on the first I'd have to look. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's the first hundred thousand gallons, I think it's two dollars and fifty cents a gallon now, which is pretty big savings versus thirteen dollars and fifty cents. Mm. Yeah, um, wow. So that helped out a lot. I mean, you know, there were there were times when we first started the first few years. Um, you know, starting up a distillery, starting up any business is hard, but starting up a distillery is particularly hard. And we were lucky enough to be associated with a winery that obviously floated all this stuff. But there were a couple times in the first couple of years where we got real close to running out of operating money um, just on, on the tax liability alone. So yeah. Yeah. we're paying, don't, don't quote me because I'm doing uh, mental maths. It's not my strength, but it's about $90 a liter of pure alcohol Australian, which works out at roughly 40, what, 45 48 cents uh us mm -hmm. a liter of pure alcohol Does that sound yeah. Right? yeah yep yeah because you got, i always forget you guys do the the lpa as opposed to yes the 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is fucking insane. Um, so basically... Yeah, it, yeah, it works so, out at a dollar, dollar fifteen per, per 30 mil net standard. 30 rate. mil net. So it's your standard shot. Uh, so and which which yeah yeah which is like it adds a fifty yeah. cents. That's a big, that's a big barrier to entry. It is. It you is. Know, up yeah. up against the wine industry where it's fifteen cents a glass. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Our our situation has gotten better, thankfully. Um, the big the big problem that you and you alluded to earlier with is the distribution. The distribution state to state. Every state yeah. has its own laws. And uh, I'll tell you, we were, our own state was a late adopter of our brand. I mean, we were catching on in other states way bigger than we were in Indiana. And it's because we were stuck with a shit distributor and they were one of the big guys. They literally told us, hey, unless you pay us X amount of incentive, we're parking your brand. And that's what <laughs> they did. They parked our fucking brand and didn't try to sell it. And then wow. even once we got quote unquote better distributors here in the state, uh, they weren't doing anything until they realized that we were selling single barrels out the ass to every other state that we were dealing with. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's money in this. Right. And then they were all about it. So, uh, but yeah, you, you run into that stuff or like when I was at Copper Kings, one of the other things that happened was, uh, in our Ohio, is a huge control state, right. And they're the worst of the control states as far as what I ever saw. Um, so you have to apply to get, you know, and you go through the whole process, all that stuff. And then you get into the state. And then they used to, I guess they still do it this way. I don't know. I don't, we don't mess with distribution in Ohio, but they would look at the list every six months. And if you weren't selling X amount, they would drop you. And then you had to reapply, repay everything. Get back. We got dropped at Copper and Kings three times trying to keep Ohio. And I, and of course I don't, you know, I own anything there or any of that stuff, but I told the owners, I'm like, why are you even bothering? Well, it's a neighboring state. Well, yeah. Well, if there's that much of a problem, let them drive over here and get it. You know? Mm. Mm. Wow. Man. Man, I, I got crazy. I got two things because uh, we're getting pretty close to the end here. Two things I want to ask you about, Alan. One, what's the buzz about Texas and single malt, and what's the buzz about Empire Rye? Those are interesting questions, actually. So um, I'll just tell you, just not so much single malt in Texas, but just Texas in general. Texas whiskey, yeah, I love it. I absolutely now, and I know there's people, and it, I think I love it because it's it's in a lot of ways it's the opposite of my philosophy because they have the heat there and you know very barrel driven, but you, Ranger Creek is fucking amazing. That those guys, Josh down there is just great. I mean they're doing excellent work. If you ever a chance to try any of their smoke stuff, go for it. Um, Iron Root Republic. Honestly, I would put Iron Root Republic's court where they've done with corn whiskey up against the best spirits in the world. And I think they would hold their own without a problem. And they have single-handedly changed that category of corn whiskey in the United States. Um, write now, it down. Do what? No, I said write it down, Todd. Right. The only problem I have with Iron Republic is uh, I know the Licorice Brothers have run it really well and I give them shit all the time because their, their whiskey gets me in more trouble than any other whiskey because it's always at like you know 125 128 127 right <laughs> like the last time I was drinking I was sitting on the porch drinking I think it was like a Tuesday or Wednesday night and I didn't realize what time it was and my wife comes out on the porch and she's like you do realize it's one o'clock in the morning right and I was like I didn't until you came out here 
Are you going to go to work tomorrow? I'm like, probably not. <laughs> um, I've been researching. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right, right. Um, Empire Rise seems to be gaining some traction. I don't know. There's nobody. There's nobody I can think of that has themselves made, let's say, yet a name off of Empire Rye. Uh, I would say that Kings County probably has a good chance of doing something cool with that. There's a lot of producers, obviously, out there. Um, and I think that that designation, that Empire Rye thing, makes a lot of sense geographically. Um, just like Missouri bourbon's a thing now. I think that's great, Kentucky bourbon. Indiana, meanwhile, has the dumbest fucking category of all time. I'm just going to call that out for my own state. Uh, they passed the Indiana rye whiskey category, and I'm, I'll even explain why it's fucking stupid. There's no history of rye whiskey in Indiana. There's a very short window of rye whiskey very early on in Indiana, and then everything else is literally Seagram's and MGP, and none of that rye is grown here, right? So if you're going to make a category, it should at least you know help cater to the farmers and be something that was traditionally grown in your region. So Indiana rye is a category. I mean, I'm going to slap it on a bottle because I have to, but it's a dumb desert. Stupid. So, Just, does uh, Big Rye have a good uh, uh, lobbying department? Do you think? I would say that, um, yeah, MGP and uh, Luxco—they've pretty much got that. Uh, they, they know Big what Rye, doing. those fuckers. Yeah, yeah, they know what they're doing for sure. Uh, now we've had another question come in before we go any further. Um, so, what's the climate like? you and do you use climate control in your barrel room or is it all au natural yeah so we're we're the climate here in southern indiana is pretty dynamic it, it mirrors kentucky almost exactly i mean in the winter time you know you you'll get down you're commonly in the teens and 20s in the winter time and then uh it's fahrenheit obviously and then uh you know in the summertime we'll get up you know upper 90s low 100s very high humidity um so we're constantly driving liquid in and out of barrels uh, now, our climate here at the distillery for our aging, we have sort of two warehouse situations. We have one that's attached to the building itself. We're not actively heating or cooling it. It just works off the passive heating and cooling of the building itself. It's very high humidity in there, uh, but only 20, 30 degree temperature differentials throughout the year. So um, anything that's volatile. So, again, going back to, you know, 90% of what you taste is what you smell. Anything that you don't want to blow that volatility off of. So alternative grains like buckwheat, kasha, uh, oats. Anything with those grains, they do fantastic in there. All the apple brandy always stays there. All the grape brandy always stays there. But anything with more than 70% corn or anything with rye does not work in that building. Uh, you really need those real heavy fluctuations for those, those products in particular, in my opinion. Uh, so the other warehouse that we have is a lot like a Scottish-style Dunnage. Um, and all of the barrels are, I should add, 53 gallons larger. We don't use any small barrels. Uh, they all go on uh, like the California Square wine racks is how we have them. We don't have a we don't have a brick system and all that stuff because I like my fingers. I prefer not to lose any of them. Um, but the other warehouse, it'll fluctuate between however cold it is outside uh, in the winter times, how cold it's going to be in there, uh, and however warm it gets, it's going to be just a few degrees below that. So mm -hmm. I think the hottest I've seen it in there is is maybe right at 100 degrees in the summertime with barrels under four high. Uh, so that, that is about 37, 38 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, cool. Got it. 
I needed that. What about, uh, are better at math than Americans do. That's yeah, we we, we got to go back to the boards. I don't know. What about, math. Uh, I'm using Google. I'm using uh, Google. I'm just punching that shit you in. You don't have to tell people. <laughs> doing it live. Doing it they live. know. They know. So, Alan, one of, one of the discussions we have here is about the temperature differentials. You know, it's, a, it's a big part of the Australian climate and, and, and impact on barrels. But barometric pressure. Um, yeah. What's your take on barometric pressure? Because there's a lot of us here that talk about it and go, we actually think that makes a fucking big difference. It does make a big difference. So, And I'll, I'll tell you how you can prove that, people. Um, you ever notice before, right before a storm rolls in, you go in your warehouse, how many barrels you have that are leaking? Yeah. And then go back to it after the storm's over and they're not leaking? Yeah. The reason, for that, the reason for that is that when that barometric pressure hits, especially if it's a low-pressure system, you got, are you guys familiar with the idea of, like, ponds flipping over in the springtime, like the bottom comes to the top, top goes to the bottom? The liquid in no. that barrel gets enough pressure on it that it turns with barometric mm. pressure. And that pressure pushes against the barrel. You can literally, if you go in this warehouse down here right before a storm comes in, like we had a huge storm system yesterday, you'll think every barrel you have is leaking majorly, hmm. right? They're not. They're just seeping a little bit. And it's because yep. of the pressure coming through. Yep. And that's, it's a huge thing. It also affects on a pot still. And, and so I keep track of all that stuff, moon phases and barometric pressure, temperature, everything. Hmm. On a pot still, barometric pressure, if you ever watch – It'll slow if you have a low pressure system come through, it will slow the flow of the still down. Not huge, but it'll slow it down just a little bit. It's like putting the brakes on, it's like turning the steam down just a tiny little bit. So that's fascinating. I've never actually seen it on, on the still, but absolutely on the barrels. We get a lot of uh, storm fronts that blow off the planes, and yeah, the barrels hiss and squeak and weep. Yeah, and, and you can almost know. hear them crying out when a storm comes through. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, we, and, you know, people talk about temperature differentials, but there are a few talking about, yeah, pressure, low pressure systems for that and, and what it actually does. So, and that, that whiskey's calm. And that's what people don't realize, you know, like when I, we worked at Copper and Kings, they had a stereo system. They played barrel, they played music, the barrels and stuff. The stereo system went in because we like listening to music and it became part of <laughs> right? But that liquid is always moving in that barrel. It's always yeah. moving constantly. So it doesn't set still, you know, it's not like, it's not like you open the barrel and you put a thief in, and in the middle of the barrel still white whiskey. You know, it's constantly doing its thing. So, so you're not playing heavy metal to your to your barrel. Oh, don't get them started on on that. Do I will. Know? I will eventually. I don't have the same. Okay, I, I mean, I can bullshit with the best of them. <laughs> mention Luke. Mention the word Slayer. See how he responds. <laughs> right. Go on. Do it. Do oh, it. He just got something special handed to him. What was that? A broken hydrometer. Ah. Uh, uh, question. I'm sorry. What was the last question? So, so you're playing Slayer? <laughs> Fucking Slayer. Right. <laughs> I'm not a Slayer fan. I, I, I do like Megadeth, though. I love Megadeth. I give Pat high shit about Slayer all the time because that's his favorite <laughs> band of all time. So I, uh, I've made the joke several times, and it's going to happen eventually. Uh, my my goal is Megadeth Brandy, right? Because Dave Mustaine's always pissed about everything that Metallica's ever done. So they got their whiskey, and the next best thing for Metallica money is fucking Megadeth money. So sign me up for that shit, and I'll make Megadeth Brandy. <laughs> uh, I've got to tell you a story, a true story. So um, 
uh, ACDC, mm-hmm. right? ACDC have a have a whiskey, right? And I was talking to an electronic band that I love, an a, a Australian electronic band, who are highly influenced by electronic band of the seventies called Craftwork. Right? Yeah, yeah, Craftwork. Yeah, you know Craftwork, right? Mm-hmm. So the name of my distillery is Craftworks. Yeah, and it's very much a nod to Craftwork for sure, right? Absolutely. Anyway, so I got talking to these guys known them for a few years, loved their music, went to a concert, hey, love everything you do, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote to them not so long ago, and I said, if fucking ACDC can have a whiskey, why can't you have a whiskey? Let's do it. Mate, we're on the project. It's happening. Nice. Nice. That's very cool. Yeah, it's ironic. Uh, so Todd Leopold is um, a fan of a lot of the bands I like too. So I, I, I love ACDC, and I, love, I do love metal, but I also like a lot of the early uh, – like new wave stuff, like the Cure, like sort oh. of Peter Murphy, that kind of stuff. So uh, Todd knows the bass player for Bajas, right? And he's hooking me up with the bass player for Bajas. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I want to make something happen with that because I thought I'd, I'd, I'd love that kind of stuff. So, and the fucking name alone, yeah. Bajas, the name, yeah. right? Yep. And have that just blasting through the stereo at the barrels would just add an extra. Yeah, yeah. And all those bass frequencies of, of all that early new wave stuff. I mean, between you know, oh, yeah. and Joy Division and you know, Bob. Oh, mate. yeah. <laughs> and right. you and I have talked about it. The importance, <laughs> the importance of music, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and music and what we do. There, there, there's there's a relationship between the two. And I there and is. I know, you know, here when when in the shed, sometimes we'll crank it up loud, uh, particularly when cleaning. Well, our type of cleaning anyway. Right, just crank it up loud, and, right. and uh, it's very superficial. Which is very, a, very superficial. It's usually <laughs> something down, maybe. Yeah, every, everything I do is 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 pretty well, is pretty well inspired by music somehow. I mean, like if I if I'm like if I've got a new product I'm working on, like all the burdens here, they yeah. all have a playlist. They had a list of songs I was listening to when I was coming up with the mash bill figuring out if it works and like literally you can buy bourbon from here go to my youtube page and look up the playlist and you can you can sit down and drink that bourbon while listen to the music that inspired it which i think is kind yeah. of a thing so that's oh, really man. cool that's cool hey uh before we get much further i think it's time to throw todd under the bus so run it uh uh hold on hold on Oh. No, that's oh. not, not <laughs> me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wrong one. Wrong one. No, not that one. You're Bostic. What? Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh. What is Fucking Thunderbird. It's Thunderbirds, all right? It's Thunderbird. And now, it's time for... Throw the Todd under the bus. Right. So, Alan, I did a three-year self-imposed apprenticeship. And so I was the apprentice, and Todd was the apprentice apprentice. So I'm now a distiller, and Todd's still an apprentice, almost coming out after three years. So Todd's got a series of questions he'd like to ask you. Go. Well, I don't really, but anyway, we'll see <laughs> That's why it's called Throw Todd Under the Bus. I've been asking questions all night. Yeah, keep going. Right. <laughs> See if that was if that was my still hand, I'd be like, "Did anyone ask you to talk?" 
<laughs> you speak when you're spoken to. <laughs> Come on, boy. Ask somebody. What do you got? If you if you had a grubby distiller as your your mentor. <laughs> What yes. advice would you give the, the apprentice to help him get his act together and actually clean his shit up a little bit, make it a bit? <laughs> now that that was shed, not shit, but it's interchangeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. If he does a wide pan of the shed right now, I can almost guarantee you there'll be a pool of something festering underneath his mash tongue. No, 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 I've been, I've been cleaning. Carry so on. I would do, I would do social yeah, but he's not going to pan. Social media <laughs> shaming is what I would do. It just <laughs> pictures and tagging. That's, that's what I'm doing. Right. I, I would start off gently enough. It wouldn't go to social media initially. What I would do is I'd get one of those, uh, you know, they, they make Polaroid cameras again now. Right. And I just start taking mm. pictures, pictures of shit. And I'd make a board that says problem areas. I wouldn't say anything to him. It would just be a board that said problem areas and I'd walk away. I'd put it somewhere where he had to see it every day. And then if nothing was done about the problem areas in like a week or two, then we're going straight to social media and I'm just hacking the shit out of you. <laughs> All right. Well, here's here's our problem area. Wait. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> what was I even saying it? Oh yeah, that one. That's that's <laughs> so, so this this genius. Um what what's one of the most important parts in a mesh ton? What would be one of the most important parts in a mesh ton that, that without it doesn't work particularly well? Shit. <laughs> well, no, not shit, but um so whatever floats your boat. For us, would be an agitator, right? You know, that agitator goes out. I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking so, it's a specific part of a match pun that makes it work. So the, put it this the, way: the false bottom. If you if you uh, if you don't have a false bottom screen, you're making porridge. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 I got you. I got you. Yep. Yep. How many times so have you done that, Craig? Yeah, he's, he's talking about the time that, and it's not all that long ago, right? It was only about six months ago. I had a long time in band camp, yeah. Yeah, it was a band camp. Yeah, yeah. When I was when I was at band camp, it was about six months ago. Yeah, exactly right. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong at all. So uh, I'm enjoying this from throw time. I know, I know, I had a lot of, a lot of shit going on, right? I had to make a lot of phone calls, and I had to take a lot of phone calls. So I thought I'd be clever. So I had to put headphones on and bluetooth and i'm working away and everything's going great and i've and I got a brew i gotta do a wash run bang 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 and i'm and i'm on fire right and then uh, I'm, I'm starting to uh i turn the pump on start to water over it in, into the ton and the pump just goes that and just stops i go what the fuck okay open it up and it's just full of grain full, right? grain. full, of, full of grain right and i go what the fuck then I realized in my wisdom of, of putting headphones on, I got distracted and I didn't put the screen in, right? A mate of mine rocks up uh, at two in the afternoon and I was in deep, deep in this and what the fuck do I do? How do I rectify this situation, right? Um, and he left at four in the morning 
and I went to bed about five in the morning after pulling out porridge, right, <laughs> draining all the water, putting it back in, put the screen in, and it just went on and on and on. And it was such a, a, a newbie mistake, and it was just pure distraction. And that's one of the, that's one of the biggest problems that, that I have is, is distraction in, in, in the shed. So I don't, I don't have a shiny things is another distraction I can say. Squirrel, kitten squirrel. Yeah. Squirrel. <laughs> I don't have a I, I do have a match thing story, but I'm not gonna tell it's too embarrassing, but I will tell you another funny one that you'll enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so when I was at Copper and Kings, everything was you know valved from you know the basement to upstairs. And so like to fill the stills, you had the tanks in the basement, right? So and you'd have your low on set in the tanks and you'd have to pump it upstairs to the stills. So it's a, a two-person operation. And yep. so I'm giving a tour one morning and I'm in the basement, which is where the cellar's at as well. And then there's a separate room with the tanks in it, the pump system and everything. And I'm touring these two people around and I could just come out of the room where the tanks were, where the guy was pumping. There's supposed to be the other guy upstairs watching everything. We walk around the corner into the other side of the basement and it just looks like a fucking waterfall. Just right. So they started pumping the still and they didn't close the bottom valve. And the guy that was upstairs had went to the bathroom or something. Who knows what the hell it was. <laughs> they literally put a thousand gallons of low wine on the floor of the oh. distillery. Right. <laughs> and like, yeah. and was, all, all I remember from this initially was walking around the corner and a few people I'm going to tour and the lady looks at me and she goes, is that supposed to happen? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> Got a match? Right. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, we haven't, we haven't done that yet, Touchwood. No, no, no. But we're, we're, you talk to distillers about what's your fuck up, what's your biggest fuck up, and oh, man, do you hear some horror stories. <laughs> I've got some good ones. So uh, just real quick, and I won't tell you exactly how it happened, but uh, <laughs> first batch of bourbon that I ever made was at Moonshine University for Copper and Kings. Uh, and so, of course, I have the little school there and, you know, they have a classroom. So we had rented yep. the distillery. Well, the classroom has windows in it. And you, so you can see in the distillery, right? So if you fuck up, everybody in this class will see that you fucked up. So yeah. it just so happened that Lisa Wicker of Widow Jane was in that class at the time. It was a rum class. And I don't remember exactly what went wrong, but something went terribly, terribly wrong with pumping the mash over. And basically ended up with porridge the same way that you did and got to clean it out in front of this fucking class in front of like 30 people watching me, right? And I'm sure the guys at Moonshine University are just like laughing to themselves and, and you know, I'm sure they probably told the class like, yeah, this fucking dumbass normally makes brandy, so, uh, you know, just kind of excuse him for not knowing what the fuck he's doing. With <laughs> this is a learning experience. Right. Yes, yeah, teachable moments. This is what yeah. not to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mate this this has been absolutely awesome tonight it really has yeah, it's, it's been great long long overdue um I'm, I'm hoping to get my ass over to the u.s next year with a with a bit of luck and i'm, and I'm looking forward to, to well, i'm hoping out. he's taking his apprentice with him yeah well that's the plan if, if we if we can do and it right you're gonna need glue yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'll stick well, we'd be glad. To, we'd be glad to have you over here for sure. Be glad to have. Right. You. I, I um I I know, I know Bill Owens 
yeah. who uh, he, he came to came to Australia a couple of years ago, and uh, we took him around to to a few places, right? And he 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 loves Tin Shed Australia, right? He just loves it. Um, anyway, I was I was talking to Bill uh, about a year ago, maybe. And I said, mate, I, I'm coming to the US and, and I really want to just have a really good trip and go to different craft distillers. And he goes, where do you want to go? And so I gave him a, a, a concise list and you were actually on the list. And he goes, yeah, I think I think you pretty well nailed it. <laughs> you know, nice. so, which was cool. Um, but it's such a dynamic um, environment over there. Um, it, there there's... There's so many things going on and, and uh, some really, really cool shit. And it's a big country, your country. Our country's big, but your country's big as well. Yep. I try I try to stay in my part of it. <laughs> my little area. Yeah. <laughs> my playground. But, yeah, wow. I, I would love to have you over sometime. And, uh, obviously, you know, where we're located, we're, we're only, like I said, a little bit more than an hour north, uh, northwest of Louisville. Um, so you'd be right there at Kentucky, and then there's and then there's some great places uh, in in Missouri and Illinois too that you should check out. Stumpy's Spirits for sure uh, is definitely one in Illinois that, that you guys definitely want to check out. So yeah. So do you know whether there are any Australian distributors of Spirits of French Leaf? Not as of yet. As far as I know, the only place that we've gone to outside of the U.S. is we've got Canadian distribution now. Um, uh, so I, I would love to, and as far that's as I'm like, that's a little bit like us saying we 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 are um, distributors in Tasmania, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> what, what are you going to say, Ellen? You you were going to say something then about? I uh, just we we we've got some stuff lined up. I think eventually for uh, England, Scotland, Ireland. Um, yeah. That's been talked about in the past, but again, we got to be careful with our stocks too because we're. Still small. So. Yeah, yeah. We will just have to uh, put our orders into our specialist bottle shops and get them to bring something in in the meantime. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Bring it yeah. in. I'll, I'll tell you a, a cool little story just to wrap it up, and you'll love this, Alan. So um, I, I've been talking to Todd, Todd Leopold, Leopold Brothers, and I said, "Mate, is there any way?" I can buy a bottle of the three chamber because I know it's as rare as fuck, right? It's incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. And he wrote back and, and, and I said, I'd love to buy a bottle because I want to share it with my, my craft distiller mates in Australia. Yeah, I just love what's going on there. And he wrote back, he said, mate, no way, can't sell it. But he goes, but I'd be honoured to send the bottle for you to share with your Australian craft distiller mates. That's pretty cool, right? That's very pretty cool. Still waiting, still waiting, Todd. I'm still waiting, still waiting. <laughs> right? Right. But, but we do have Todd on in, in about two months. He's he's going to do a shoot in the shed episode. So, well, if he, uh, gets, if he gets a bottle over to you uh, and can get one in, let me know, and then I'll I'll get you something out as well because I know that's you know it's figuring out the the legalities and all that stuff of getting. Yep. So, but mate, absolutely. I'll uh, I'll flick you my address. Yes. Or yes. <laughs> well, we'll say that on you know on the thing, but you know how. It is, so. Well, thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you for your patience in uh, Crafty's fuck up with the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wearing that one. 
Throw crafty <laughs> under the bus. So, so how long were you sitting there waiting for us to show up? Going, Where the hell yeah, are you? Uh, about 10, 15 minutes, something like that. Yeah, like, I got on, it was a blank screen. I like logged back off, got on my phone and logged on on there. It was still a blank screen. I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> Have I got the right date? Right. Yeah, so I started thinking like, I mean, and then you, when I message you, Crafty, you're like, oh, we're almost done. I'm like, did I miss the whole fucking thing? That you got to do <laughs> We've been yeah, talking we, amongst ourselves for an hour. Yeah. We have done that before. <laughs> nope. so. uh, we're, we've, had a, we've had a mega four hours <laughs> shooting the shit tonight. It's been fucking insane, to be honest. It, right. It's been a good yeah. night, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's been really entertaining tonight. Well, I appreciate you guys having me for sure. Well, thank, thank you. you very much for uh, for making the time for us, yep. uh, especially given that it is the start of your work day. Yeah. Um, and seeing you right. drinking was must be pretty hard, but. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the website. Jump on all the socials and all the rest of it. Obviously, we can't buy it here in Australia unless we can find somebody to import it. Uh, otherwise. Pay the duties and get it shipped over for, from the US. I'm probably going to do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, please remember to like and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, the website shootingshit.com.au. Uh, we now have, we've got coasters. And if you're lucky, you might get one. Yeah, of course, that. Oh, we're cartoon characters. Actual cool. artwork designed for us. Bob Wally, green artist. Um, so yeah, if you maybe you might get one of those in a bottle from craft in a in a order from Crafty on. Uh, it, it, it does happen. Yeah, yeah, uh, it can happen. Uh, or, or if you see him at the markets. Before you go on, just just quickly, Alan, we we went to um, down to the Australian Distillers Conference. We took. A thousand, I think it was a thousand beer coasters. There are a lot. We came, we came back with a hundred. There's nine hundred of those things. With wow. they were like pigeon poo. They were you, everything. You, you, you have one. You have one. We have one everywhere. Uh, all right. And so, thank you very much for your time. Thank you to our sponsors that we did get through. And I think the only one that we didn't talk about uh, in our uh, middle intermission was uh, CCL. Thank you very much for your support as well. And uh, we will be back in two weeks yep. with someone. Do you know who it is? <laughs> Change your plans someone? for that one. We'll sort that out. Oh, okay. Well, there you awesome. go. Have absolutely oh, no I won't say who we're talking to next. It'll be <laughs> someone. It'll be someone. Uh, thank you, Alan. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Yes. Same thank here. You. Thanks, guys. Cheers, all, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Good night. Thanks, bud. We'll talk soon. See you later. See ya. <laughs>